Well, let's open our Bibles back to John 18, and I'm going to let you in on a prayer that I've been praying since yesterday as it relates to today, and that is, um, I've just been praying that Jesus would receive praise uh, in our service, that he would receive praise in this message. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever been slandered? Have others told stories about you that are not true? Have your words been twisted? Have you or your family members ever been blamed for something that you didn't do? Has one or multiple people posted about you so that others can read these hurt-filled words on some social media platform? Has your reputation been bruised because of your enemies? How do you respond to these? Do you lash out in revenge? Or do you keep it in and become bitter? Or is there another way? Well, for several months, we have been reading through the Gospel of John together for the purpose of knowing that these words are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name, John 20, verse 31. And as we've been working through the Gospel of John, we have come across seven of these I am statements. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he later said, I am the bread of life. And in the same way that manna fell down from heaven during Moses' time and helped them to survive, Jesus is our daily sustenance. And he is also, I am the light of the world. After Jesus brought light to a blind man, he declared that he is light. And if you want to know truth, get to know Jesus. He also said, I am the door. And if you want access to a relationship with the Father, it is only through Christ. But he offers an intimate, close relationship. And John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd, one who cares for his people. He also indicated, as he raised, about ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection. He just demonstrated tremendous power. And if there's anyone here looking for the way or truth or life, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if anyone is looking to bear fruit, to be more like Christ, that is only possible through a saving relationship and then continually abiding or remaining in him because Jesus says, I am the true vine. But here in John 18 we see another side of Jesus, a side in which he is slandered, lied about, attacked, and treated unfairly. So the question before us today is how will he respond? If you remember John 18, the first 11 verses, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. It is nighttime. You see it there in verse 3 because there are lanterns and torches. 
And now we're going to see this Sunday morning, as well as next Sunday morning, these trials of Jesus. There are six of them. There are three with the Jews. There are three with the Romans. The first three is the former high priest, Annas. The second one is with Caiaphas. The third one is with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And then the fourth trial is with Pilate. The fifth trial is with Herod. The sixth trial is back with Pilate. This morning, we'll take a stab at least the first three or four of those trials. And I wonder if anyone here feels as if they've ever been mistreated or falsely accused by the court system. I imagine in a room as large as this, there's probably some good stories. And I can think of some in my own life where I thought I could get off on a technicality, only to find out that I needed to to pay that fine after all. I remember when I was in seminary in Fort Worth, I was there from out of state, and one day I was riding with my boss, who was my lead painter, and I was kind of his assistant, and we were driving to a job site, and we got pulled over by a policeman, and the policeman pulled up next to the truck, and he says, the reason that I'm pulling you over is because that man right there doesn't have a seatbelt on. And I thought, I'm from out of state. I didn't even know that it was a law here that you had to have your seatbelt. Surely the judge will let me off for that. And I went into the courtroom that day. I didn't realize that I was supposed to bring an attorney and that I was responsible for an opening statement and to bring my own witnesses. But I quickly learned that that's what I was, that's what I was supposed to do. And I just threw myself at the mercy of the court. And I didn't get any. <laughs> I didn't deserve it. Well, here we'll see all sorts of trials before us. Now, if you follow along in your sermon outline, I've taken time this week to do something different. On the back side of that, I've actually quoted or summarized some of the Jewish writings called the Mishnah that actually lays out what the rules are of the Jewish court. And I want you to see how many of them are violated in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. So with that long introduction, let's pick up where we left off last. And let's look at John chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers... And their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. We will see in a moment in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. The first trial that we see is Jesus before Annas. Annas is also referred to as the high priest. Well, how many high priests were there? Well, it's much like what we have in America, the office of the president. If I refer to President George W. Bush or President Barack Obama, you know that they retain that title for their entire life. And the same is true for the office of the high priest during the first century. Let me just give you a little bit of history on Annas. He was one of the most powerful men in all of Jerusalem. 
20 years earlier, he had actually served as the high priest from years 7 to 14. And he had managed to maintain influence all over Jerusalem by having five of his sons serve in that office over the last 20 years. It's as if he is still the main controller over the office of the high priest. And currently, his now son-in-law is in that position. And during this time, Annas turned the high priest's office into a very profitable business. You see, what he would do is he would collect licensing fees for sacrifices at the temple. Many from all over the surrounding area would come on the Passover. And they would come to bring an offering. And they would come using the coinage that was accepted all over the place. It would be a Roman coin. But not under Annas' authority. He said, if you're going to offer an offering here, then you need to exchange that Roman coin because there's a, a Caesar's inscription on it. And you need to exchange it for a Jewish coin. And you can do that right here for a fee. Not only that, but he instituted or oversaw this corrupt certification system for sacrifices. There might be someone that would come and offer a lamb from 50 to 100 miles away. And as best they could tell, that lamb was without blemish. But when they brought it to the temple there in Jerusalem, Annas's goons, I mean his priests, might say to themselves, this is not certifiable. You are not able to offer this sacrifice. There is a blemish on this. However, we have some pre-certified lambs and animals over here that you can pay for and God will accept these sacrifices. We might call Ananias, or Annas rather, a crime boss. He was bringing in the money. And why would Annas want to challenge Jesus? Well, you probably remember a long time ago in John chapter 2, Jesus went into the temple in verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You see, Annas wanted to bring Jesus to his home to question him, not for moral or legal reasons, not for theological reasons, but for financial reasons. You see, we have this little expression, don't we? Follow the money. And that was true here. Why was Annas so motivated to deal with Jesus? Just follow the money. Because Jesus had challenged his corrupt system. So we see here in verse 19, under this first trial, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. 
Now that might seem like a harmless verse, but when you spend some time reading the background of the Jewish law system, you see red flags all over the place. You can see this on the back of your handout, but let me read to you some of these red flags. That is, no trials would occur during the night hours. Also, no trials were to take place during a festival like Passover. All trials were to be public. No secret trials were allowed. And all trials were to be held in a specific place, the Hall of Judgment in the temple area. And capital cases required at least 23 judges. And an accused person could not testify against himself. You see, Annas was not concerned at all about any of those things. His pocketbook was being violated. So he ensures that Jesus is brought to his house. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. You know, translation, I object. How is it that you are asking me a question based on the Mishnah, chapter 3, verses 3 through 4? How is it that you would ask me a question? Verse 21, that's a fair question. Why do you ask me? If you really want to ask witnesses, ask those who have heard what I have taught. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Now, this is the first time that he has struck, but you know the story. It certainly won't be the last. And so Jesus said there in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If, if what I've done somehow violates the Jewish law, then by what precept, by what, what law have I violated in doing it? But if I've said what is right, why do you strike me? And there was no precedent. What Jesus had said was true, that he should not be directly questioned. Well, this was not at all going the way Annas had hoped. So what we read here in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. That concludes the first trial. Then we look at the second trial, the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Now, who is this Caiaphas, by the way? Have we ever heard from him before? Well, according to chapter 18, verse 14, we have. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, what is that referring to? Well, in John chapter 11... After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember what happened? There were many people that started to become followers of Jesus. There was an interest in him. Let me read to you John 11, verses 45 and following. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, 
had seen what he did and they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told him what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations. What It's been said that a broken clock will be right at least twice a day, and Caiaphas was right that time. The people were nervous that there was, the people by the drove were becoming followers of Jesus. And the leaders of the Jews thought to themselves, we're going to lose all of our power and our influence. And Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said, listen, that's not going to happen. One person's going to die for all of this. So we bring that into the second trial because there we know that Caiaphas already has his mind made up on how this second trial is going to go. Now, John does not include the second trial. But why don't we just borrow from Mark here, turn with me to the left, and you can see the Gospel of Mark, and we'll just read for this this second trial that actually includes not only Caiaphas, but also the Sanhedrin. In Mark chapter 14, It says there in Mark 14, verses 55 and following. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that it is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the chief priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, Well, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. When we see this passage in the second trial, we see that false witnesses are brought before Jesus. But when we refer just back to the Mishnah, these Jewish documents, we learn that conviction required the testimony of two or three witnesses to be in perfect alignment. And that's according to Deuteronomy 17 and 19. 
as we see here in these verses. In verse 56 as well as verse 59, these testimonies did not agree. Another one of the Mishnah laws was that witnesses for the prosecution were to be examined and cross-examined extensively, but we don't see that. And each witness in a capital case was to be examined individually, not in the presence of other witnesses. But that's exactly what we see here in this mob. And then you'll notice in verse 64 that there is this quick judgment made. But when we look at the Mishnah, we read that voting for conviction and sentencing in a capital case was to be conducted individually. It would go like this. The youngest, the youngest would decide he's innocent or he's guilty. And then it would go up to the oldest so that the oldest would not influence the youngest. Sentencing in a capital case was not to occur until the following day. And verdicts in a capital case were to be handed down only during daylight hours. And we see all these being violated in the name of this rushed judgment of Jesus. It's kind of ironic here that this Caiaphas seems to show this expression of just being appalled that Jesus would claim to be God. He tears his garments. But according to Leviticus 20, verse 10, that was forbidden by a chief priest to tear his own garments. And so, so far, we've seen two different trials. Now let's bring it before Judas. They've tried him before the Jews, and now let's bring him before the Roman governor, Pilate himself. Let's look at John chapter 18, and let's go here to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It's believed that Annas and Caiaphas's homes were joined together by a courtyard in the middle, so they were close to one another. The Bible here tells us that it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And just pick up on the irony there. Here are these Jewish people that are going to reject God's promised Messiah, who are currently trumping up lies in order to kill an innocent man. But they don't want to defile themselves by entering into a room where there is a Gentile, Pilate. Verse 29 tells us, So Pilate went outside to them, because they weren't going to come inside to him, and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? I think there would be benefit to just pause again and talk a little bit about Pilate. Who was Pilate? According to historian Alexander or Philo of Alexandria, he called him inflexible and merciless. He was known for brute force. This governor was appointed by a friend named Sejanus. Part of his inflexibility, it certainly did not serve him well, as he looked over these religious people, the Jews. 
Because for Pilate, he just insisted that the Jews adjust to him. So one day, he had these shields that had Caesar's inscription on the other side of them. And he insisted that the Jewish soldiers use these shields. But when they saw them, they says, we cannot use these. These violate the law of God, this engraven image. We will not use these. And they actually had a, a sit-down strike. We will not, we will not use these. And so Pilate goes out and says, if you do not use these, your heads will be lopped off. And they all lay down, exposing their necks. And Pilate says, I can't do this. And so he retreated, he took the shields back, and they went to Rome. But there was another time where he insisted these Roman shields be brought into the temple there in Jerusalem. And once again, the Jews were beside themselves that these engraven images were brought into this holy temple. This time, Herod's four sons says, you've got to do something about this Pilate. He is incompetent. And Herod says, listen, lay off, Pilate. And that time he also withdrew the shields. There was a time when there was water. They, they needed to update the water system there in Jerusalem. And instead of paying for that with Roman money, Pilate went in and, and grabbed from the, the Jerusalem temple's treasury. This too did not go over well for the Jews. As the governor of that area, he could choose whatever imprint he wanted on the coinage of that time. And he insisted on offering a pagan symbol on the coins. All of these upset the Jews. And around this time as well, the man that had placed him in office, Sejanus, was poisoned. And now he was dead. And it was as if Pilate didn't have any friends. He was afraid of losing his job. And I think he was probably afraid of losing his life. So you bring that now into the story here of Pilate. He asked this questions in verse 29. What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered in verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, we'd have not delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. From time to time, we see in the scriptures where Jews would kill someone with stones. They would literally throw these stones, like Stephen in the book of Acts, to the point of death. But the Jews had an agenda here. They wanted Jesus on the cross. And why would that be? Well, according to Deuteronomy 21, if one died on the cross on a tree, well, then they would be cursed. And then they could say to all those followers of Jesus, see, this man is cursed. Let me read to you 21, 22 through 23 of Deuteronomy. And if a man committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. So we see in verse 33. So Pilate entered 
his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? The word you here is emphatic, as if to say, Are you the one that they are saying is, is one that calling revolts? Are you that rebel because you don't look like one to me? Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm just curious, Pilate. What is it that you think of me? Even in the moment of a trial, Jesus can't help but look for an opportunity to share the good news, to disclose who he is. Verse 35, Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priest, has delivered you over to me? What have you done? And if ever there was an open door for Jesus to be able to say, well, let me tell you what I've done, it was here. He could have shared with them how he had never sinned. He could have shared how he brought the, the, the blind sight, how he fed the 5,000, how he calmed the sea, how he walked on water, how he raised the dead to life. But the timing wasn't there. And Pilate wasn't willing to listen anyway. Verse 36 Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Yes, I am a king, Pilate, but my kingdom is not one of violence, of military and political persuasion. Rather, my kingdom is one of the heavens. It's ruled by the heart and by the Father. There must have been a relief that came over Pilate when he realized that he was not some sort of a king of this military campaign. Verse 37 says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Even while he is under trial, he is looking for an opportunity to share truth with Pilate. Let me tell you why I'm here. Let me tell you why I was born. I've come to proclaim truth to anyone that is willing to listen. Listen to what verse 38 says. That Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, if you were a true truth seeker, he went to ran out of room. But it says this, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews. He just asked that question, but he really wasn't seeking truth. And then he declares there in verse 38, I find no guilt in him. And there is your verdict. Innocent, right? Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And I think we can conclude that Pilate was hoping they would say, yes, this would get him off the hook. But that's not what they say. Verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas 
was a robber. According to the other uh, Gospels, he was not only a robber, but according to Mark 15, verse 7, he was a murderer and part of an insurrection. We might call him a terrorist. So in response to all these things, how does Jesus react to it? Let me just crank through these. The first thing is we see meekness. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness but power or strength under control? We see this fulfilled in Isaiah 53, verse 7, where the prophet said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth and his Caiaphas was drilling him with questions in Mark 14. He did not open his mouth. And did he respond in anger and bitterness? Listen to what Peter said to that. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus prayed, not my will be done, but yours be done. The way he lived and responded in these trials was an answer to that. He, he was entrusting himself into the Father. Well, how is all this taking place? And, and where is God in all of this injustice? Well, I would remind you that Jesus was in absolute control during this time. He told us that this would take place. In John 3, verse 14, he told us that he wouldn't be stoned, but he would be lifted up. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you are in your sin, and you are in need of forgiveness and life, Look up to what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Not only this, but he said in John 8, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing out of my authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. He was reminding His disciples there would come a time where He would be lifted up on a cross. And then in John 12, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. There is meekness. You experience some injustices some things that are unfair in your life, enemies that are whispering behind your back, texting or posting about you, look to Jesus. In the midst of all these false accusations, he is able to rest in God working out a plan in his life. And then, secondly, how does he respond? Well, he's the substitute. 
Why was Jesus submitting to all this injustice? So that a sinner could be forgiven. I want to take you back to that word Barabbas. The word bar, B-A-R, means son. What does the word Abba mean? Father, dad. The word Barabbas just simply means a son of a father. Jesus died for a son of a father. Think about that. The son of the father died for a son of a father or a daughter of a father. Charles Spurgeon said, Barabbas was accused of these three crimes, theft, insurrection, and murder. He said, you and I may fairly take our stand right to the side of Barabbas. We have robbed God of his glory, and we have been seditious traitors against the government of heaven. And if he who hateth his brother is a murderer, we also have been guilty of that sin. And as Jesus stepped in to Barabbas' cross, he also stepped in and took our cross. I don't know, maybe it's a little far-fetched to think that they had the crosses all ready to go to take up to the mount, and maybe they had identified this one here is going to be Barabbas' cross. And then they would change it and say, no, that's not his after all. Someone else is going to take his cross, and it's Jesus. Why did he do all of this? He did it for Annas. He did it for Caiaphas. He did it for the the members of the Sanhedrin. He was making a way to forgive them of their sins, to open the door to a relationship with the Father. He did it to open a door so that you could have a relationship with the Father. Grace and love is available to you today. Would you make the most out of this heinous scene of these fake trumped-up trials and work good from it by giving your life to Christ, to allowing Him the praise that He is due by taking this on. It's also occurred to me that in a room like this today, there's many that have probably already trusted Christ. And I think as we look at this passage, gratitude ought to well up within us of the love that He has for us, that He would do and take on this as a substitute for us. As we get ready for our closing or our invitation song today, I want to invite anyone that would like, just to, as we sing this song, to come to the front and to pray, maybe a prayer of gratitude, to say thank you for taking on all this injustice on my behalf. Perhaps you would just continue the prayer for that revived life, that you would experience it yourself. And perhaps you've never trusted Christ. Would you join me, everyone, why don't you join me in a prayer today? Father, we thank you for this passage. 
In it, we see how unfair the people treated Jesus. They lied about him. They tried to persuade others that he was who he, who he actually wasn't. And yet we see you working out your overall purpose in this. That he would be lifted up. That he would take on our sins. That the Son of God would die for a son of a father, a a daughter of a father. Friend, if you've never trusted Christ to save you, if you've never looked up with the eyes of faith that Jesus, it's that I, I trust you. Save me from my sins. Deliver me from my wicked ways. I'm sorry for what I've done. Do it now in your own words. Cry out to him that he would save you. He has died in your place. He is your substitute. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.